Well, everybody I know wants to be happy. I think it appears, though, that some people don't really understand what true happiness is. Um, Would you agree that today a lot of people think that it's money that makes you happy? Yet some of the wealthiest people to have ever lived said that their fortune brought them misery. (laughs) Misery. I mean, rich people have, I mean, extremely wealthy people have jumped out of windows and ended their life. Uh, Others think that if they could just be famous, man, they, they would be happy. And yet a lot of famous people come to the end of their lives feeling unhappy due to loneliness, um, due to sadness that they, that they bear in their life, yet very, very famous. Well, we began this new series last weekend, Sermon on the Mount, A Kingdom Upside Down. Upside Down. And in the Sermon in the Mount, uh, on the Mount, Jesus is giving his followers, he's given us as his disciples a description of the ideal citizen of his kingdom. How people who have chosen to place themselves under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, how we are to live out our lives. So it describes for us what it means, what it looks like to be freed, to live when we commit ourselves to the kingship of Jesus. Now, the Jewish people who returned from exile, uh, they were looking forward to the restoration of a Jewish kingdom. You aware of that? Uh, this is at the time of Jesus. They were looking forward to that, and they, they were expecting uh, for the Jewish state to, become, to, to be returned and for there to, be this, it, to become this world-dominating kingdom Uh, with a descendant of David on the throne and Jerusalem as its capital. But centuries had gone by. and They were under the control of one empire after another, and now they're under the control of the Romans. And I think that many of them began to wonder, is it actually ever going to happen? Is the kingdom ever going to happen? So when Jesus comes proclaiming this, the coming of the kingdom of God, man, it raised the hopes of the people. It had been hundreds of years. They were hopeful. They, the, the multitudes, they came out. They wanted to hear what he had to say. Was this the kingdom that they had been looking forward to? Was it now at hand? Well, Jesus did indeed come to establish a kingdom, but it was not the kingdom they were looking for. They were looking, they were hoping that Jesus would overthrow the Romans and establish this Jewish kingdom, but but that's not what Jesus had come to do. It was completely an upside-down kingdom compared to what they were expecting. And the first hint of this comes early in Jesus' ministry, his public ministry here in the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus begins to teach the contrast with the values of his kingdom, the, what, a, what a kingdom citizen of his kingdom, how a, a, a citizen of his kingdom would live as compared to those in the world. So there's a contrast. Over and over in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. What he was saying was, You've heard what the world tells you. You've, you've heard the, the mantra of the Pharisees and the, and the religious Jewish leaders. You've heard all of that, but let me tell you what I say. And so Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is at odds 
with much of human wisdom. If you're going to live as a Jesus follower, if you're going to live as a believer in this world and you're going to follow the Bible, you're going to be a weirdo in many ways, shape, and form in this world. And the, and the more distant our culture gets from God, the weirder we're going to seem to the world. The, the stranger the, the word of God and the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Paul and all the Bible, it's going to sound crazier and crazier to the world. As I read tonight's text, notice how upside down Jesus' prescription for happiness is compared to what the average person would expect today. I would say this, in fact. I think when the disciples heard this for the first time, I mean, today, these verses are kind of familiar. Pretty familiar to us. We can hear them and they don't shock us. But I would dare say that when the disciples first heard the Sermon on the Mount, they were like, well, that's strange. (laughs) Never heard that before. What's this? Follow along as I read. Begin in verse number three. It's here on the screen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We call these the Beatitudes. And we're just going to look at half of them tonight. We'll look at the second half next week. And and it comes from this uh, Latin word, beatus. And it just translated, can be translated as blessed. That's how it is in the, in the uh, Christian Standard Bible, what I'm using here tonight. Uh, some translations, you'll see it use the word happy. But, but understand, Jesus uses this word blessed to refer to something more than a superficial happiness. So when we use the word happiness tonight, don't just think of the superficial way that we often think of happiness based on our circumstances. Everything's great in my life, so I'm happy. What Jesus is talking about here, when he talks about blessed or happy, he's talking about a state of spiritual well-being, spiritual prosperity, not financial prosperity. We're not talking about, we're talking about spiritual prosperity, a happiness that is deep joy in the soul, an inward contentness that is not affected by our circumstances. Our circumstances can be absolutely horrendous, and yet there can still be this deep-seated joy and happiness in our life. This is what Jesus is talking about when he used the word blessed, and oftentimes in Scripture, this word blessed or happy is used of God himself. Uh, When David entered one uh, of his psalms with the declaration. He said, blessed be God. This is the word in the the Septuagint, same uh, word that was used. Solomon saying, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. Paul spoke of the glory of the blessed God and of Jesus Christ. He said, he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Jesus here, in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches us that the way we find happiness and blessing comes with the degree to which we partake of God's holiness and God's character. Does our world equate happiness with holiness? No. We'll dive into that a little bit tonight. 
You see, the values of this world do not lead to happiness. Here's our big idea tonight. Blessing, true happiness and blessing, comes through living by the values which the world despises, but which God holds dear. The world despises these values that we're going to talk about tonight, but God holds these values, these qualities dear, and he calls on us to reflect his character and to to reveal his will. He's revealing his will for every one of us as followers of Jesus. So let's just look at them one at a time. Blessed are, in verse number three, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So I'm going to give you four H's. You can remember them this way. Blessed are, first of all, the hard up. The hard up, poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Does it mean a lack of courage? You know, like poor in spirit, like uh, the tin man on the Wizard of Oz. Is that what, poor in spirit? Oh, you know, that kind of a spirit? No, he's not talking about a lack of enthusiasm. You know, the bump on a log at the, at the, at the high school basketball game, the kids st- sitting over in the, in the corner of the bleachers, he's not cheering his team. I'm not talking about that when we talk about poor in the spirit. There are two Greek words that are used for the word poor. The first word describes a man who has to work for his living. And it was defined by the Greeks as describing this man who provides his own needs with his own hands. It describes a working man, the man who has nothing excessive, nothing unnecessary. He's not rich. He's not destitute either. He's just, he works and he provides and he has just enough. That's the first word. The second Greek word means to crouch or to cower. And it describes the poverty which beats a man down to his knees. You picturing this? This is the beggar. The man who has nothing at all. Nothing. Completely destitute. Completely hard up. This is the word that Jesus is using here. Now, the Beatitudes, they were not originally spoken in Greek. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, right? So we're, we're using Greek words. Jesus actually spoke in Aramaic. And so there's all this translating. You know, we got English and Greek and Aramaic. It's, it can get combobulated when you try to get the actual meaning here. But the, the Jews had a special way of using this Greek word used for the poor. In Hebrew, the Aramaic word came to describe the helpless man who, because he had no earthly resources whatsoever, puts his trust in God. Completely destitute, a, a beggarly person, but trusts God with their needs. Utterly helpless, but trusting in the Lord. In fact, in the Psalms, the poor man, in this sense of the word, he's the good man. He's the one who's, who's dear to God. It says in the Psalms that he's the one that God delivers. He's the one that God provides for. He's the one that God provides bread for. He's the one that God will not let perish. Why? Because he trusts in the Lord. Now, to be clear, I don't believe that Jesus is implying material poverty. I don't think that, the, that this is what he's getting at here. Why? Because he talks about a poverty of what? Of spirit. Poor in spirit. Jesus is applying this destitute begging to the spiritual state of the citizens of his kingdom. So, so picture this with me. The blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually bankrupt. 
those who recognize they are utterly dependent on God. It's recognizing, it's seeing our own spiritual destitution and utter dependence on God. There is and remains in his followers this state of spiritual inadequacy, right? Do you recognize that in your own life? It's what drives us to our knees every day, isn't it? We recognize that, that we need him, right? Uh, in, the, in our moment of salvation, it, it requires us recognizing our spiritual state and coming to God begging, right? Lord, I can't save myself. I'm unrighteous. I'm a sinner. And, and coming to him for salvation. So it, it's a, this idea of being stripped of all self-sufficiency, all self security and self-righteousness, being stripped of all of that. In, in Christ's parable in Luke chapter 18 of the tax collector and the Pharisee, you remember this one, right? The tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee was so proud of himself that he wasn't like the tax collector and, and he was so uh, self-sufficient, self-righteous, but it was the tax collector who beat his chest and asked God to have mercy on him. He was poor in spirit. He was broken in spirit. Church, this is the pathway of all true believers. The poverty of spirit supports this doctrine that we call justification by faith alone. It's being declared righteous, that nobody can save themselves, that everyone must come to God for his grace and for his mercy. And this is the opposite of the spirit of the world, the world neither glorifies God nor gives God thanks. Some even see faith in Christ as a crutch, right? As a weakness. This poor in spirit, oh, it's, it's a weakness. And to some degree, in one sense, this is true. Because we recognize that we need him, that we don't come to him in our own strength and, and righteousness. We come to him beggarly, hard up with just empty, open hands, calling on him, believing on him. And so this poverty of spirit, I think that it's placed first in the Beatitudes on purpose. Why? Because if we can't grasp the first Beatitude, there's no point in moving on. If we're not poor in spirit before God, if we don't come to him as a beggar, you, you can't live up to anything else. From this point on, it begins right here. You see, spiritual poverty, it's necessary not only for justification, for salvation. It's also necessary for sanctification. It's necessary for spiritual growth. It's necessary for being used of God. We have to recognize that we need him. And without him, Jesus said, you can do what, church? Nothing. The Christian life in many ways is the opposite of the natural life. Think about that. I mean, uh, you've had kids, when a child is born, they're completely dependent on their parents, right? And as they age, they become independent. They, right? they, they take care of themselves. They clothe themselves. They feed themselves. They, they drive themselves. They do everything that they need to do. They, they can do it for themselves. Well, in the Christian life, it's just the opposite. When we're born again, we leave a life of independence. 
We leave a life of, I'll do it on my own, and we <laughs> recognize I'm complete, I have to be completely dependent on God. I, I'm completely helpless without him, and it causes us to cry out to God. And so as we mature in Christ, we begin to, do, to recognize our spiritual poverty on a deeper level. And we begin to see uh, how much we need him from start to finish in every aspect of our lives, that we need him just to make it through another day at work. You ever, you ever come to terms with that? Like, Lord, if I'm going to get through this day, you're going to have to give me the strength to make it through this one, right? Grace for relationship issues. Grace to discern our future. I mean, those maturing in Christ continually learn their dependence upon him. And often, in order to develop this in our lives, you know what God allows into our lives? Yeah, trials, storms, hardships, difficulty. Why? Because trials help us to see how beggarly we really are. How desperately we actually need him and his grace in our lives and through trials God trains us to call out as Paul wrote Abba Father help me remember the thorn in the flesh for Paul man it why remember what Jesus told him he he prayed three times for Jesus to remove that thorn and, and Jesus said look my grace is sufficient in your in your weakness you will find my strength right? What, what is that? It was, that thorn was given to Paul to help him to be dependent on his heavenly father, to cry out, Abba, Father, each and every day of his life. It helped him to see how beggarly he really was every day. And so it is the spiritually poor that God uses the most, the most. How then do we become poor in spirit? How? I think there's really only one way. And I believe it's by comparing ourselves to God. By recognizing that he is the measuring stick. And the clearer of a vision we get of God through his word, the more wretched, the more undone, the more we recognize how that, as Jesus said, without him, we can do nothing. We recognize that when we look to him. What do we often do, though? As I was thinking about this this week, what we generally compare ourselves to is not to, to the Lord. We compare ourselves to other people, right? And we think, well, I'm, I'm pretty good because, you know, look at that guy over there. Look what he did. Watch the news, and you'll feel like a, woo. You'll feel like a saint. <laughs> you know, like, I haven't stolen anything. I haven't shot anybody. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm a good citizen. Comparing ourselves amongst ourselves as human beings is a bad idea. The way that we see how beggarly we really are and how hard up we are, it's by looking freshly at God himself, at Jesus himself. 
Isaiah got a glimpse of this, Isaiah chapter 6. I'd encourage you to go back and read the first couple verses of Isaiah uh, chapter 6 where it says that Isaiah, he got this vision. He was in the temple. He got this vision of God in his temple and, and smoke filled the place and there were these, these seraphims and they were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. And it said when they would cry that out, they had six wings and they were covering their face and, and their body and their feet. They were completely covered as they, as they cried out, holy, holy, holy. And, and as they cried that out, the foundation foundations of the temple uh, shook and the, the temple was filled with this smoke and, and then Isaiah said that he had this vision of God and his holiness in his temple and you know what Isaiah said? What did he say church? He said woe is me. Woe is me. You see it's so necessary for us to get on our face every day and get a fresh glimpse of God because when we do we recognize where we are and where he is and how much we need him in every way, shape, and form in our lives. Church, this is upside down. This is countercultural. Why? Because the world prides itself in self-confidence, right? I mean, be, be the man. I mean, you, do, you can do that. You do you. I mean, right? It's all about being competent, being, ha, having this self-reliance. I don't need God. I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody. I, I can do it. I'm, I'm good on my own. No begging. This is countercultural. How do we know if we understand better? How do we know if we are poor in spirit? Here's how. Do you get amazed at God's grace for you? Do you get amazed by it? We sing about the grace of God. Do you get amazed by it or does it just kind of... Oh, yeah, thanks for saving me, Lord. Are you aware of your sinfulness? Are you aware of your continual need for God? Are you often in prayer pleading with the Lord for help? If we're poor in spirit, we'll pray often as beggars to our Lord. To the poor in spirit, God says he will give the kingdom of heaven, a place where his will is done Perfectly. So that's number one. Blessed are the heart up. Secondly, blessed are the heartbroken. He says in verse four. Verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, this is the strongest Greek word that could be used in the Greek for this idea of mourning and it, it talks about it's used for the mourning for the dead if you lost a loved one lost a young child anyone who's experienced losing a spouse or a or a a child knows that intense sorrow that it seems as it, as if nothing no words, no actions, nothing can somehow soften the blow and the pain of that sorrow. It, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, this is the same word that is used for Jacob's grief. Remember Jacob? Remember, remember, his, remember his son Joseph and how favored he was? He loved Joseph, the, the oldest son of Rachel. He loved him dearly, gave him that coat of many colors, but his brothers hated him what they do. They sold him off to slavery and they told their dad what? 
he was killed by a wild beast. And they showed the coat of many colors with blood all over it. And what did Jacob, Jacob for years didn't get over that thing. This is the same word, the mourning, the grief that Jacob experienced for his son. So what does Jesus mean here? Is he offering comfort to those who lose someone dear to them? Well, the scripture certainly does offer comfort for those who are in Christ, right? Amen? I mean, if if we lose someone, the God of all comforts, he comforts us. In fact, the scripture tells us as believers not to grieve as those without any hope. If you know the Lord and and if your loved one knows the Lord, man, then then there's a, a hope that we have, a confidence that we have, a peace that we can, it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt, doesn't mean that there's not sorrow there, there will be, and, and, and man, the, the tears will flow, but listen, there's, some, there's a confidence and a hope, a peace that we have in the midst of that. And you've seen that, haven't you? Have you witnessed it in your own life? I've seen it so many times as I have come alongside families who have, who have lost a loved one in the Lord, and I've seen the peace that passes understanding how God gives them, grants them that comfort. Well, one day, I love what the scripture tells in Revelation 21. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. Every tear. He says, it says Revelation 21:4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. For all eternity, we're going to dwell in his kingdom of comfort and peace. Amen? Is that what Jesus is getting at here when he says, blessed are those who mourn? I think it applies, but I think there's more to it. I think in the same way that the first beatitude is applied to spiritual beggarliness, the second here is applied to spiritual mourning. Instead of mourning over the death of some, right, it's, it's the same attitude of lament. It's the same attitude of mourning that should be applied to our sinfulness. When we recognize that we're beggars, when we recognize that we're unworthy, when we get that glimpse of the Lord, that, that, that sorrow that comes over us, when we see ourselves in that light. Notice the very first word of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. Look at it in verse number 17 of the previous chapter. His first word was, repent, repent. You can't repent unless you're sorry. Unless you mourn over your sin. You see, the thing that really changes a person is when our eyes are open to our sin and its effect. When we recognize how beggarly we are in our sin and the effect that our sin put on Christ. When we look at the cross which Jesus gave his life, we can't help but see the effect of our sin, right, church? You look to the cross and you see Jesus there on the cross. It shows us how sin can take the loveliest life that has ever lived on this planet and smash it on a cross unjustly. When you see the horror of the cross and what Jesus did in our place as our substitute and for our sin and salvation, we can't do anything but experience intense sorrow for our sin. But wait, 
I thought, I thought we were talking about being happy. Pastor Dave, aren't you giving us God's prescription for being happy? <laughs> You're telling us we got to mourn and lament? Doesn't sound like a roadmap to happiness and joy to me, but listen, it is. It is. Why? Because what does sin do? Sin destroys. Sin kills. Sin ruins. Sin steals our joy. It ruins our joy. What restores it? Repentance. Repentance. Go to Psalm 32. We don't have the time to go there tonight. Write it down. Go read Psalm 32, and what you're going to find, this is a psalm that records David after his sin with Bathsheba, and after he, he talks about how, man, his bones groaned. His, he was in this groaning as he hid his sin before he confessed his sin. Man, it had this, this destructive effect on his life. And the first verse of Psalm 32, 1, David writes this, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You want your joy back? Here's the roadmap to happiness, the roadmap to, to deep-seated joy. Repent. Mourn over your sin. Look to the cross. See what Jesus Christ did for you. See the awfulness of your sin and come to him and confess your sin. Acknowledge your sin. And what you will find at the cross is forgiveness. And when you have the forgiveness of God, your joy comes back. Or if you've never experienced it, you will find a joy that you have never known. You see how upside down this is to the world's values? Why? The world values pleasure-seeking. That's what the world values. Hedonism, right? The world, uh, the philosophy of the world is what? Eat, drink, and be merry. The the world lives for the party on the weekend. Uh, uh, I mean, it's all about the the pleasure that they can somehow, they get in all the gusto out of the world. The world thinks That happiness is attained in those sorts of ways. But Jesus says true happiness and blessing comes to those who mourn. (laughs) Who mourn. What does he promise? Comfort. Comfort. There's no greater comfort than finding his grace and his forgiveness and his blessing. There's no greater comfort. That verb Uh, shall be comforted it's in the passive voice which means it's God who does the comforting when you when you come to God with that beggarly heart you recognize your destitution and you and and not, not only in the moment of salvation but each and every day as a follower of Jesus when you when you live with this this Lord I need you today and we mourn over our sin. If there's any sin in our life, we are going to be comforted. We're going to find that joy that God intends for us to have as his followers. I think it's illustrated in Peter. Remember, he went out and he denied Christ three times. Jesus said, hey, after he arose, hey, tell Peter I want to see him. Peter was forgiven. Peter was comforted by Jesus. Jesus comforted him in his repentance. That is the same he will do for you. If you've been living under the burden of of sin, look to the cross again. See what Jesus did for you. And if you look long enough, you'll become heartbroken over your sin. 
repentance will follow, then forgiveness, and then comfort. Blessed are the hard up. Blessed are the heartbroken. Number three, blessed are the humble. Verse five, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Now the word humble translated here, it needs some explanation. It refers to an attitude that expresses itself in, in patient endurance, especially in the face of offense. You've been offended, and yet there's this, still this patient endurance, this self-restraint. What do you want to do sometimes when you've been offended? You want to wrangle them, right? Yeah. This is the opposite. This is self-restraint in the face of offense. It's power. You have the power to, but you but you keep it under control. That's what Jesus is talking about. Oftentimes, this word is translated gentle or meek in other translations because those are synonyms for this gentleness and and meekness. In the regular Greek, the word was used for an animal that had been trained or domesticated, right? Broken, like a horse that had been been broke, right? Uh, That that horse that had been broke has some self-restraint. All that power that could kill the master, crush him under its hoof, but yet that power is under control. That is what Jesus, that's a word that Jesus uses here. So it refers to a person who has the power to do something hurtful, but chooses to show mercy and gentleness and act with self-restraint. Now, is this kind of countercultural? Well, yeah, of course it is. Being meek in the world's eyes is being weak. I mean, the world glorifies, a secular culture glorifies, hey man, if someone hits you, hit them harder. Hit them back harder he won't, so he won't do it again. Right? That, that's the world's thinking. Being meek in the, in the world's eyes, it carries a very negative idea. Right? Being a, a subservient, spineless coward. Nobody's aspiring to be that. The culture values self-assertion, putting yourself forward. Pride, conceited with our our own superiority and expressing uh, our own importance and power. That's what's valued by the world. However, this quality does not infer cowardness. It does not infer weakness. Jesus himself, he calls himself meek, Matthew 11, 29 said he's meek and lowly. Jesus was no coward. Jesus was not weak, right? You know, it's a fact that, the, that it is, has always been the men with this attitude, those who are men, they have passions and instinct and impulses, but they're under control. The men who have great passion, great instinct, great impulses, but they have learned to control them. They're under control. Those are the men who are the greatest. In fact, Numbers says that Moses was the meekest man to have ever lived. I mean, Moses had a great deal of power. He led uh, a couple million people through the wilderness, and and God uh, used him, uh, anointed him as the leader of the people. Uh, He went boldly before Pharaoh said, let, let these people, he was, a super, he was the superpower. Egypt was the superpower of the world. Moses was not a coward. Moses was a meek man. The writer of Proverbs says, he that rules his spirit is better than he who takes his city. 
the ruling of your spirit. You see, as Jesus followers, we are to be gentle and meek and kind and patient like Christ and Moses, not abrasive in our attitude. How do you become humble, meek, gentle? How do you become this? Well, I can tell you this much. It's not by our own self-effort. Let me say that again. It's not by our own self-effort. Do you suppose that if you could produce meekness in your own effort, you would then become proud? Isn't it amazing how quickly humility flees when we think we're humble? <laughs> right? Just as soon as you start thinking you got meekness and humility, whoops, there it went. It's not by self-effort. You know, the only way to be meek and gentle is through Christ. It is through his spirit. When we yield ourselves to his spirit, Galatians chapter 5 says the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and temperance and meekness. It's the Holy Spirit's work in us when we yield ourselves to him. Now, secular people and some Christians who have this worldly mindset feel like, look, the way that you're going to inherit the earth, and that's what Jesus says, right? Blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. The secular thinking is the only way you're going to inherit the earth is by power, right? By putting yourself out there, by being abrasive, by running everybody over who gets in your way. This is upside down. Jesus says it is the meek, the humble. He flips the thinking. And he says it is the meek and the humble who will inherit the earth. Revelation 21 and 22 talk about a new heaven and a new earth. That one day God is going to freely give his true disciples this new heaven and new earth And it's not something that they will have grasped for themselves. It is something that God will give as an inheritance. So blessed are the heart up. Blessed are the heartbroken. Blessed are the humble. And then fourth, blessed or happy are the hungry. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, we know what it means to be hungry. It's to feel or desire to eat. Thirsty is to to feel or to desire to drink something. We've all been hungry. We've all been thirsty. Now, in modern conditions, we don't really understand the real desperation of hunger and thirst. Um, Now, I think some of my children have, at least they've tried to convince me at times. Do you remember when your kids were small and and they would say something like, Daddy, I'm going to die if I don't get something to eat. You're like, no, you're not, kid. You had breakfast, you had lunch an hour ago. You're not going to die. You're going to be okay. But it seems so real. But none of my kids, I can assure you, I have six kids, none of them have starved to death. They haven't even been close. But you know, in the ancient world, things were very different than 
most of us have ever experienced. A working man's wage at this time was the equivalent of three pence. Nobody's getting fat on three pence. The average Palestinian, uh, Palestine man, the, the Jewish man, ate only a meat, ate meat only once a week. That was it. They ate bread. I mean, they, they ate like just the, the bare necessities, the, those basic grains and things that they could easily get their hands on. And so the average man at this time, the working man, was never far from the borderline of real hunger and actual starvation. They weren't very far off. When it came to thirst, it wasn't possible for these folks to have a a tap in their house where they could turn on the spigot and get a drink of of cold water. And and especially if they were out and and they were on a, a journey, you know, in the midst of the desert and some hot wind would blow up and the sandstorm would start kind of as we've seen here and I mean the only thing they could do is wrap their head wrap their head with some cloth and turn their back but that wind and that swirling sand it'd be up in their nose and in their mouth and man it would be really easy to become parched with this imperilous thirst well in the conditions of modern western life There really isn't any parallel to this other than if you end up going out for a hike and not taking any water in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the summer, you can get in trouble and people die right here, right? From dehydration. So maybe there is some degree of understanding there on our part. Experts don't know exactly how long a person can live without eating. Two to three months is possible. Um, the longest, uh, longest time anyone has ever gone without solid food that's been recorded is 382 days. That's a long time. The guy's name was Angus Barbaria from the UK, 1940. He lived on tea, coffee, water, soda water, and vitamins. No solid food. I mean, going without water, that's another story as we know. Without any water, most, po- mo- most folks excuse me, can't lasts more than a a few days. As a general rule of thumb, a person can survive without water about three days. If you have a a water-rich diet, if you can get a hold of some vegetables, some fruits, some things that are water-rich, then you can actually go uh, longer than that. But the truth of the matter is, real thirst and hunger, it gnaws at a person, doesn't it? Have you ever been hangry before? Right? Look, I know that we... We have cupboards full, but we still understand to some small degree what it means to be hungry. We just can go to the cupboard and we can get something to eat. We can turn on the tap and, and get something to drink. But you know what happens when, when your blood sugar's low and you're hungry and you get hangry. Man, uh, when, you, when you think about Jesus saying here, blessed are the hungry and the thirsty? This is upside down. In our minds, in, in, in secular culture, it's blessed are those of us who we, we can just get what we can eat, whatever we want. We can go out to eat three meals a day if we want to. Probably not anymore in this economy. Have you noticed how expensive it is eating out right now? I mean, it's gone crazy. But 
God created our bodies with a need for energy, a need for water, and we can't ignore that too long. What Jesus is describing here is not a hunger that a snack, you run to your pantry, you know, and you grab a granola bar or some yogurt or an apple or something, you're like, okay, uh, I'm hungry, okay, I got a snack, and I'm all taken care of. It's not, he's not talking about that sort of hunger. It's a hunger of a man starving for food. It's a thirst of someone who will die unless they get a drink. And what does Jesus say the happy hunger for? It's not food or water for the body. It's what? What does it say, church? Righteousness for the soul. Not food for the body. Righteousness for the soul. You see, righteousness is the solution to our spiritual bankruptcy. The need for it has already been established in the first three Beatitudes. We, we need the righteousness of God. We're beggarly. We mourn over our sin, and we come before him humbly, seeking his forgiveness and his help. Well, the answer to all of that is righteousness, the answer to that is, the scripture says, there's none righteous, no, not one. We're all born sinners. And the way to become righteous is to be declared righteous. The word is justified, declared righteous. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. When a person is saved, God declares you righteous. He justifies you. And in doing so, he credits the righteousness of Christ to your account. We are beggarly and he credits to our account the righteousness of Jesus. Religion can't do that. No amount of good works can, can earn you righteousness. According to the scriptures, we're only declared righteous by receiving as ours the righteousness of Jesus himself. Now, most people, even those who don't have a relationship with God, they have a desire, some level of desire for goodness. Most people want to be good, even a criminal. Even criminals locked up in the penitentiary, they will, they will want to be a good person in their eyes, whatever that looks like. It can be completely distorted of what that looks like, but, but every person to some degree desires some goodness but oftentimes, we're just content with a self-righteousness. We're content in the goodness that we think we have in and of our, ourselves. But the blessed, the happy, are those who have been declared righteous through faith in Christ and go on hungering and thirsting for a living out of Christ's righteousness. It's the practicality, the sanctification, the living out of that righteousness of Christ in our everyday life. Church, what Jesus is talking about here is an all-consuming passion for God's righteousness, to live it out in this world as followers of Jesus. And again, this is, this is countercultural. The culture satisfied with, with self, with the lust of the flesh. The, the culture, many in the culture, they're satisfied with being spiritual, you, they talk about spirituality, but it's a spirituality without any godliness attached to it. 
That is not what Jesus is talking about here. He says, happy is the one who has an overwhelming, intensely desperate desire to be like him. So tonight, are you hungry? Are you thirsty for him, for his righteousness? You know, this hunger and thirst for this practical righteousness, it's not automatic and it's not ever present, is it? Have you experienced this, right? Why, why is that? Why isn't that we're, we're not always hungry for righteousness? Have you ever noticed that when you eat junk food, it destroys your appetite for the good food? This is why mothers say to their children, if they're coming in the kitchen, they want to eat, you know, a cupcake before dinner. What does mommy say? No, you can't do that. Well, why she have to be such a big killjoy? No, she understands that eating that Cupcake is going to destroy their appetite for the nutritious food. This is how it works. When we satisfy and we fulfill the lust of our flesh and we feed the lust of our flesh, man, the desire, the hunger and thirst for righteousness, it withers up. And so tonight, let's just check our hearts. Are we hungry for righteousness or has our hunger for righteousness and to live out that righteousness in our life, has it been Diminished by hungering and thirsting for the things that satisfy the lusts of our flesh. Jesus promises this. The regenerated one who lives with a hunger and thirst for righteousness, look what he says, they will be filled. They will be filled. The desire for practical righteousness will not go unfulfilled. How much do you want to live out the righteousness of Christ in your life? How much? Like a starving man? Like a starving man? Like a man who's dying of thirst in the desert? Is that how desperately you want the righteousness of Christ to be lived out in your life? This is what Jesus says is the prescription for happiness. You want to find blessing and happiness in the deepest sense? Everybody wants to be happy. But you're not going to find it by valuing what the secular culture values. As followers of Jesus, we live by what the world considers upside-down values. Jesus says, blessed are the heart up, the beggars before God. Blessed are the heartbroken, the mourners before God. Blessed are the humble, the lowly before God. Blessed are the hungry, the desperate for righteousness. That is God's prescription for happiness. Next week, we'll look at the second part of this prescription. I hope you'll join us. Let's pray. Father.